we'll start in one more minute. We'll get everybody just another minute to settle. It's 201, so we'll give another minute and then we'll get started, guys. Hey. Think, oh. Okay, 30 more seconds. Were you guys at Bethel last night? Very cool. How many of you, I, I was really surprised. I've been to music festivals many, many times, but I was really surprised. I didn't know much about Dante Bo. Right? I was like, oh my goodness. I knew he was so good. A modern day hymn writer. It was, he's fabulous. He reminds me of a guy, I don't know if any of you know of this gospel artist named Ty Tribbett. He reminds me of Ty Tribbett, but he, um, yeah, I only knew his song Joyful because that's what's on the radio. And then he came out and I'm like, I just don't even know what's happening. This is amazing. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a surprise for me, was that one. Okay, we are on, for me, number six of six, dare I, <laughs> dare I ask. Okay, first of all, the miracle is that I have my voice. Um, I, my tendency is to lose my voice all the time because, as you see, I'll stay around and do Q&A. So the fact that I have my voice is a wonderful answer to prayer because uh, that tends to be the first thing that goes. But dare I ask with much trepidancy and fear. You are already putting your hands up because you already know what I'm going to And there's no shame. There's no shame. Okay, who has been to, <laughs> you guys are putting your hands up. Who has been to all six of six? Raise your hand. I cannot believe there's that many creepers here. Like, you better, I better be back for 2020. <laughs> That's so kind. No, thank you guys. I, I appreciate it. It's 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 um it's just helpful for me to to just know that at least I'm connecting and I and I'm making sense. And apologetics is such a head um, kind of uh, way of looking at Christianity. And and one of the challenges that apologists apologists have is to uh, bring it down to the ground, bring it down so it doesn't so people get it. So the fact that I see people saying I have been to several, that means that you're getting it, and that's good for me to know that I am making sense. Um, and that's really helpful for me. So with that said, let's go ahead and get started on this particular one. Really quickly, sorry, I should mention, I'm part of an organization called Lighten or Lighten Group. Um, many of you are probably familiar with Ravi Zacharias or National Ministries and some of the things that have happened with that over the last several years. I was with them eight years. And um, now I'm with another group called Lighten Group. So you're welcome to check out our table over there. Um, we do podcasts. Uh, where We Begin is our podcast. You can watch it on YouTube, or you can look for Where We Begin on Spotify, any of those kind of things. And and um, you can find us there, and we do all kind of questions. You'll meet some of my other colleagues that are speakers, as well as check out our website. Our website uh, has a lot of great articles, depression, loneliness, evidence for the resurrection, uh, passages in the Old Testament, this kind of thing. And so uh, we just want to encourage you, let you know that it doesn't have to just end here, but um, there is going to be other opportunities for you throughout the year to be able to take a look at and some of the things that we do and also just be strengthened and be, uh, just feel, feel like you've got a better foundation um, in terms of your belief system. So feel free to check us out or um, join our email list or whatever you want. The table is over there. And I have a few uh, cards with me as well. With that said... I'm going to talk to you today about a topic I never thought I would talk about. When I first started in apologetics, I was living in Boston. I'm originally from Rochester, New York, for those of you uh, who heard me say that the other day. And um, I was in Boston, 
And there were certain questions that would come up while I was in Boston. And this is one of the ones that would come up. This idea, like, if God exists, why isn't he more obvious? And what would happen is I would answer it, and then next time I'd answer it, and next time I'd answer it. And one time I was in Canada speaking at a place, and my answer was like 15 minutes. And my colleague was like, it's probably time for you to turn that into a talk because it's a pretty long answer in Q&A. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, we'll do this. And um, I understand why this is a topic that um, is so prevalent in people's minds. It's something that I still wrestle with somewhat where I'm just like, Lord, sometimes we um, – we just wish we had more of you. The cool thing about creation is we're doing this in nature. And I'm a big nature person uh, because I just, I just, um, I don't know, like, it, it, you've heard me use artwork examples probably many times by now, but I just think it makes sense. You know, when you um, understand and connect with nature, it's just kind of a whole different thing in terms of how I can see God. Not in the trees. God is not in the trees. <laughs> He's not in the grass. I don't mean that. Um, but just the handiwork of him. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. And so I've titled this talk, Does God Play Hide and Seek? And the reason why I did that is how many of you ever played hide and seek as a kid? A few of you. Okay, good. All right. So with the game of hide and seek, I used to love hide and seek. It was my favorite thing to do. And you run and you like hide behind a tree or, or, or somebody, excuse me, somebody counts at a tree, maybe up to 20 or 30 or whatever, and you run and hide. And we did the one where you stay hidden until somebody finds you. That's how we did it. And so you run and hide. And so let's say I'm counting at the tree. I open up my eyes. I have no idea where anybody is. First thing I'm going to do is just start walking this way maybe. Or start walking this way. But I don't have any clue where to go, right? I'm just randomly walking around. But what if I counted, I opened up my eyes, and I started going this way, and I heard warmer warmer, you're getting warmer. Or I heard like a beep, beep. In other words, I can't see what's there, but there's clues or hints that are pointing me in that direction. And I actually think that this is how revelation and the understanding of God actually happens within Christianity. God gives us clues that help point us in the direction that we need to go so we may seek him and find him. Now, I will say, of course, that there are times when God is actually hidden. The Bible actually does say this. Ooh, um, I forgot my clip. So hopefully we won't have any wind because my music will, I mean my music. <laughs> On the music stand, my um, notes will fly all over the place. I'm a, I play violin. I play in the orchestra at my church. So when I see music stand, I, I automatically think music. Um, anyways, all that to say, we'll use the phone for now. Uh, so it says in Isaiah 45, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Additionally, in Psalm 88, it says, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? In other words, the Bible does seem to indicate that there are times when God is hidden. But yet we know in Christianity that God wants us to know who he is, that he wants to be found, that we are created to have a relationship with him. So remaining completely hidden would contradict his intentions for mankind. So if God did, let's say God did want to reveal himself to us, is there a way that he could do it? 
That is the question that we have to ask ourselves. When I look around at this nature, at this beautiful world that we have and that we see, like I was saying before, I just have these, it's almost like when, you, when, you, when somebody sees a beautiful sunset or maybe they see the ocean, they have this tendency to say, wow, and be, in, and be like in awe of it. I remember I was talking with an atheist friend of mine, someone who was in his 70s and was not interested in being a Christian at all. And he'd been an atheist for a long time. And I said to him, I said, is there a time in your life where you ever wish there was a God? And he was like, nope, not really. There really hasn't been a time when I wish that there was. He said, but there have been times when I have been struck by the beauty of creation and been sorry that there was no one to thank. That really spoke to me. What is it about a creation that is silent, that's not communicating to us, and we see it and our response is a verbal response back? Why is it that there's something when, 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 we, when we sense in creation, and if you heard me talk even yesterday um, on whatever it was, I don't even remember I talked about yesterday, atheism, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't sex, in general, that was the day before. But yes, and, and, you ha- and, you, and I talk about you go to these remote places, right? People see these remote tribes, they see such beauty in nature, they see, feel like a connection to nature is important. Why do we feel this way? Is it because it's one of the ways in which God is giving us clues or hints or pointing us in a direction that he might be there. Now, what I'm not saying is that you're going to look at a sunset and say Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. You can't get that. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, is this part of God's way, a general way in which God is giving us hints that there might be something more? To even open up our minds to the option that there might be something bigger. But even when I talk about this, people say to me, yeah, but you know what, Alicia, it would have been really nice if God had just struck. I would hear this in Boston all the time. Why doesn't God just strike as a lightning bolt in front of me and let me know he's there? So, so let's think about this for a second. Walking down the street and a lightning bolt strikes in front of you. Do you run up to it and say, oh, man, God, you're amazing. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to bow down. Or do you run the other way? right? You get out of there. You are not going to run down and think that's amazing. In other words, guys, when God comes that strongly, we don't run towards him. We run away from him. And you actually see this in the biblical text. Let me read you a little bit of what happened in Exodus. This is uh, uh, the, the, the Hebrews after they have left Egypt and they have gone and they're uh, in the wilderness and Uh, They are encountering God. So they know God is speaking. And here's what happens. This is Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
and going to Exodus 20, verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. So listen what's happening here. There's thunder and lightning, a loud trumpet blast, so people know this is God. Like there isn't even question about what this is. They know this is God talking. And they're like, uh, Moses, you go talk to him. We're terrified of him because if we get to close to him, we will die. If we talk to him, we will die. So what happens here, guys? Here is a very clear revelation, understanding that God is here, and they don't want to even go near him. He cannot come that strong. He can't come in the ways that we think we will respond to him because we don't run towards him. We run away from him. So these are, this are the reasons, or that's another reason, I guess, two reasons why God comes and reveals himself in the way that he does and why he is partly hidden. So partly revealed, but also partly hidden. So number one, if he fully reveals himself, we just can't handle it. And number two, he's partly hidden because in order for us to be in a genuine relationship with him, you can't feel like he's all in your face. Kind of getting back to the example of how do you drive down the street when a police officer is behind you? Do you have complete freedom to drive how you want when they're behind you? Technically you do, but because you have the sense of this thing here, it restricts you. And you think, oh, I can't wait till he moves. I can't wait till he moves. Imagine if God was like that with you and you'd be like, oh, I can't wait till he moves. He can't be that strong because you actually don't want him to be that strong. It messes with your ability to fully experience a relationship with him. So how could God show himself to us in a way that we wouldn't be scared, we wouldn't run away, we wouldn't be fearful? I, when my mother is uh, not from this country, she's from a country where you don't bring animals inside the house. She's from Jamaica, and um, they have dogs, but they stay outside. There's no reason for them to come in because it's not snowing like it does in Rochester, New York. Okay, so the idea of growing up of me having a dog in the house was just unfathomable for my mother. So I was allowed to have a guinea pig and fish. Had to be caged. So fish are funny. How many of you ever had fish, like a fish tank? Okay, good. So my, we had a fish tank. And fish, you know, when you, uh, you, you have to take care of fish, you've got to watch their water levels, like the water drops, and you've got to make sure you get it up the right amount. The temperature can be off, so you want to make sure the temperature is okay. You want to make sure that you're feeding them at the right time. And if you go on vacation, you got to make sure that they are um, taking care of somebody's coming in and caring for them. So you do all of these things to help the fish know that you are there caring for them, providing for them, etc. But here's the funny thing about fish. When you walk up to that fish tank and you want to put your finger there, most of the time they just swim away from you. And they want to hide in their little houses. And I'm like, what is the deal? Like, I take care of you. I feed you. I make sure your water is okay. Yet when I come close, all you do is swim away from me because you're scared of me, even though I'm the one that cares for you. 
In other words, guys, all they see is how big I am and how small they are when I come close to them. No matter what I do for them, they can't get over that size difference. So if God wanted to show himself to us, how could he come in a way that we wouldn't be scared? He could come as a baby. Because who really is terrified or scared of a baby? Nobody sees, oh my goodness, a baby just walked in the room. Get out of here and run. Like nobody's doing that. Right? So he comes in a way in which we actually don't run away from him. But in fact, when babies come into the room, it's like we're almost drawn to them. Like they're a magnet. Like we want to see them. We want to come closer to them. And he comes in a way in which we aren't caught up in how big he is and how small we are. But he comes small and he comes like us. Because the reality is, guys, is if I wanted those fish to not be scared of me when I came up to the fish tank, what would I have to do? I'd have to be small. I'd have to become a fish. Because if I become a fish and get in that fish tank with them and I'm swimming around with them, they're no longer scared of me because I look just like them. And so God comes as a baby, as a human, looks like us so that people aren't scared to approach him. He can't come big and loud, lightning bolt, and all these things that we want because it pushes us away. Rather, he comes as one of us. And Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus healed people. He cared about people. He loved children. He was gentle, kind. He grieved at pain. So we want to know what God is like. We don't need this big noise. We can look to him. In other words, in the Bible, God specifically reveals who he is through the character of Jesus and the biblical text versus the general idea that God shows us in nature that he's there so we'll even get on the journey. He specifically lets us know on the journey who he is through Jesus and the Bible. So God is partly hidden for our benefit. He leaves us clues in creation. And he reveals himself more specifically through the Bible. Now, even though he does this, there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to believe. I, have a, I do a whole talk on why should I believe that is geared towards a person who's kind of trying to figure this thing out. But there's many, many reasons why, even though God has made attempts, pretty good attempts, to reveal himself to us why we don't want to believe. And one of them is going to be the, t- the idea of shame. I'm not going to be able to cover every reason, but I'll just cover a few. One of them is the, is the idea of shame, where people know what they've done in their past life, and they think there's no way God would ever want me. There's no way I could even come to him. Some of you may or may know what that is like. I've had moments of shame and regret and just being upset with myself for things that I've done in my life. And it's like you feel like I can't go near him because of it. So some people have shame and they feel like I can't come near him. Other people say, you know what, God? And this is really common today. I will serve you, but it's, it's going to be on my rules. 
going to be the way I want it to be. So now I have a friend who is an atheist. And I said to her, you know, have you ever wished there was a God? And she said, atheist and a lesbian, actually. And, and she said, yes, I actually don't have a problem with there being God. But the God that I want to exist doesn't. And a lot of people do that in life. I want this particular God to be. So God, unless you do things the way that I want you to do, maybe the morality I want you to have, the standards I want you to have, then I won't serve you. As if God's existence is contingent upon what we think he should be like. I might have my views on this lovely young lady who's doing a great job signing for me, by the way. I might have my views on what I think of her. I know, give her a round of applause. <laughs> and I may have my views on what I think of her, but that's not going to make her not exist. Do you understand that? Like, no matter what I think of her, her existence isn't contingent or does not rely on my beliefs of her. And yet that's what we do with God. You have to be this certain way in order for me to believe in you, as if somehow he doesn't exist anyways. Another thing that people say to me is not enough evidence, not enough evidence. This is the one I have the hardest time with because I'm like, my entire job is to give you evidence. And then I give you evidence and you still don't want to believe. Let me give you an example. I was in England speaking at a university there and I met this one student who was a science major, I think astrophysics or something, astrophysicist, I don't remember exactly. And I remember him saying to me, you know, I would believe in God, but I would need evidence. I said, okay. So how about I show you, true story by the way, how about I go on YouTube right now and show you a true story of a woman named Delia Knox who was paralyzed um, driving in her car, she was hit by a drunk driver on Christmas Day. She On her way to her parents' house. She was in her early 20s, I believe, suffered a traumatic brain injury as a result, and could not walk anymore. But she was at this particular prayer meeting, this is probably 15 years later, 20, 15 years later or so. She had a particular church service. They're praying for her. She's in a wheelchair. I personally have seen her in a wheelchair. She would come to my church. She's a Hispanic woman, comes from Buffalo, New York, and she would sing around the world. She had an amazing voice. She would sing and worship God from her wheelchair around the world. So many people have seen her in a wheelchair. She's at this particular service, and they're praying over her, and she gets up, and she starts walking. It's recorded. The video is on YouTube. A week or so later, she goes back to Buffalo, New York, so she can walk up the steps to her house, to her elderly parents who were at the top, and they could see her walking again. She gets out of the car and heals like this. The Buffalo News is there. Not Christian News. The local Buffalo News station is there. I think she got an award from the Buffalo mayor's office. It was advertised on the local Buffalo News, woman who's paralyzed is now walking. I can show you this video I say to this young gentleman at this university, this scientist who says, give me evidence. I want a miracle and I'll believe. I said, I can show you this video. Would you then believe if I did? You know what he says to me? No. Because I would find some other way to explain it. 
other than a miracle from God. Like her brain was able to spontaneously reheal herself. And I'm like, at that moment, they were praying for her. Now, keep in mind, people have been praying for her for years. Okay, and I say that as an encouragement to people who are praying for things for years. We all have been there. And we're like, God, are you ever going to answer that prayer? Well, he did that night. But that was not the first time and the only time they'd prayed. People have been praying for a long time. And so this gentleman is like, no, I'll find a way to say how her brain spontaneously healed itself. And I'm thinking, what? You said you wanted evidence and you'll believe. I give you evidence and you don't want to believe. Is the issue really a lack of evidence? Or is the issue the human heart? This is one of the hardest lessons I had to learn. I thought as, when I first started out, my little naive self, oh, man, people just don't know that there's evidence for the Bible and Jesus. And I just got to tell them. And then they're going to believe. And then I went around telling them, and they didn't believe. And I had to learn that there was something more that we really like to fight against, something that we wish wasn't true. And this is the one that I see so, so common today as to why people don't believe, even though God has revealed himself to humanity. One other thought on that, I look at the story of Lazarus in the Bible. Lazarus uh, died. People knew he died. He was dead for several days. Okay, the death wasn't a private thing. People in the public knew he was dead. Jesus comes. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And we usually stop reading at the end of John 11. But if you keep reading into John 12, you will see that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees got angry. And they began to plot how they might kill Jesus for raising him from the dead and how they might kill Lazarus again. This is not a new, like the, the human heart is not new to 2022. They watched Jesus raise somebody from the dead and their response was, how do we get rid of him? They didn't believe. Now, some people did believe, but not everybody. In other words, when people say to me, why doesn't God reveal himself? Why is it any more obvious? I really question whether or not the issue is God or the issue is ourselves. And finally, some people just don't want to hear the truth because they don't want God to be true, or some just don't even care to even look into it. Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist professor of philosophy um, and law at, at NYU, says this. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. We are more likely, friends, to suffer the consequences of our own hiding than to suffer the consequences of God being hidden from us. I can help people. As an apologist, I can help people with their intellectual, evidential barriers to Christ, but I cannot make people bow their knee to Jesus. There's only so far I can go. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it 
We don't want it to be true. So God is partially hidden, but he wants us to know who he is. So he also reveals himself, comes, we starts the revelation through the natural world we see around us, the trees and the oceans and sunsets and the animal kingdom, all this beautiful nature specifically shows us who he is through Jesus. And we also need to wonder why it is that we don't want to believe. With that being said, oftentimes people ask me, what about people in remote tribes who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus? Well, I want to share with you a story um, by a guy named Don Richardson. If any of you heard of Don Richardson before? Okay, a few. He wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Have you read that one? Okay, so you might know the story. Anybody else read Eternity in Their Hearts? Okay, it's, it's actually, he takes a title from Ecclesiastes. And he's, it's, a, it's a story of many missionaries. The book is of different missionaries and their experiences when they have traveled and gone to different places. This one particular story, uh, these missionaries go to kind of like the northern part of India because this was 1800, so it looked a bit different then, but that kind of vicinity. And they encounter uh, some people living in the woods, a, a remote tribe. And they think, how can we tell these people about Jesus? So they begin to talk to these people. And as they're talking, the sage, like the head of the tribe says, hold on a second, stop what you're doing. You need to hear our story first. So they're like, okay. So here is a story that the remote tribe tells these missionaries. They said, years ago, God created things. And he created two people. And these two people were tempted by um, Lita, I believe it was a spirit that tempted them, to make an offering to the spirit. So they took rice beer and poured it on the ground and made this offering to the spirit. They drank the rest of the rice beer and they fell asleep. When they woke up, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. They had seven sons and seven daughters. After a period of time, those seven sons and seven daughters started to do a lot of really bad things. So God took one man, one female, took them, put them in a cave up high, and sent a flood to wipe out the rest. Remember, this is a remote tribe telling this story. After the flood, they took those two down. They began to have more children. And they began to reproduce, and they began to divide into different tribes. As they began to walk, one tribe decided they wanted to break off and go somewhere else. And they began to walk, and they came up against a mountain range. And they couldn't figure out how to get through the mountain range. So they started praying to the gods of the mountain to see if they could get through, and they were able to get through. And so here is when the sage says, here's where we messed up. Because we prayed to the gods of the mountains, and they got us through. And now we have to continue to give sacrifices to these gods and, and, and to these spirits. And we really know that they can't be the real God because there's only one God. And while we don't see him, he can see us. And he sustains everything. But what we have done is so bad that there's no way that God would ever accept us again. There's no way we can come back to him. And the missionary said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. 
How this tribe living in the woods somewhere got this story, I cannot tell you. But I think sometimes we think that God is not a part of the hide-and-seek journey. Remember what I said in the beginning about how God is giving clues warmer, warmer. Why do we think that somehow, in some way, there wasn't somebody that shared with them the story thousands of years ago and they've passed it on from generation to generation to generation? The reality is, is we don't fully know what people actually know about God. The missionaries went on to baptize, uh, share the gospel with them. Many people became um, Christians, and uh, thousands became Christians over several decades, and 100,000 plus were converted and baptized. Very interesting to me to know that for these particular missionaries, they had an experience that they didn't think they would have to go here and learn that they have a good general idea of a biblical story that happened thousands of years ago, and they were there to finish putting the pieces together for them. I truly believe that there's enough light for somebody to see God if they desire but also enough darkness for them to still be blind should they not want him. I want to look at a, a story with you guys. It's by a gentleman named Francis Thompson. Many of you may have heard of him. He wrote a, um, he was a gentleman who, he was born in uh, 1859 and he went to school to be a uh, doctor because his father was a doctor and he didn't have a choice. So he really wanted to write. He loved literature and reading and writing. But he went to school. After a certain amount of time there, he's like, forget this, and just left one day. He moved to London, and he was trying to get jobs um, in the literary field, but he was not able to. So he did things like selling matches and newspapers and books and things like that. During this time, he became addicted to drugs. And obviously, once you become addicted, that leads to other um, health problems and starvation. He did attempt to take his life, but he actually survived. He had written a piece and sent it off to a Catholic magazine called Mary England. And they loved the poems that he sent to them. So one of the editors, a guy named Wilfred Mayno, read the poems and went and sought out Francis Thompson and said, look, your stuff is good, but you are a mess. So he sent him off to a monastery, and while Francis was there, he became a Christian. And he wrote a story called The Hound of Heaven. And The Hound of Heaven story talks about how although people run from God, specifically Francis, God was in pursuit of him the whole time. God was the hound who was chasing him and in pursuit of him. So I want to read you a modern-day adaptation of this story. It is not going to be um, – the one he wrote is in an older English, and it would be just too complicated for you to all to grab as I'm reading it. So I'm going to read you a modern-day adaptation. You can find this version on YouTube, actually. It's beautiful. It's authored by Brian and Sally Oxley and Sonia Peterson with Devin Brown. So feel free to look this up on YouTube. But I'm going to give you a paraphrase of the story of the Hound of Heaven. 
I heard a story once, an incredible story, an amazing story. It told of one who was relentlessly faithful and loves with an unwavering love. It was said that he sorrows over broken people. It was said that he tirelessly pursues each lost one, never stopping and never giving up until. But if I let him in, what would I have to give up? What would I have left that I could say was mine? Anyways, it was just a story that I heard once, just a story. But if it was only a story, why did thoughts of this being trouble my dreams? Glimpses in the moonlight, glimmers in the starlight, and whispers in the midnight breeze. Gradually, the whispers became a sound perceptible only late at night when all the world was silent and asleep, except for me and my pounding heart and the distant sound coming closer. Soon I could hear it by day as well, stronger, constant, unhurrying. And now I could tell what it was, the beat of footsteps. Footsteps down the street, footsteps on the sidewalk, footsteps outside the door. He was coming, the one I had heard about coming for me, and so I fled. I sought to fulfill every desire life could offer, but the greater the promise of fulfillment, the greater the letdown the more intense my cravings became. The desires I had found consumed me more and more, and I was never content. So on and on, I fled. I feared if I opened my heart, he'd rush in, and I'd be allowed nothing of my own. So I turned away, hoping he would go away and not notice me. I ran until there was emptiness and broken dreams. But then, but then in utter desolation, after I have decided my life wasn't valuable and I shouldn't even live anymore. Like a gentle breeze that washed over and around me, I felt the tenderness of his presence. I had no fight left, so I finally listened. Which of those you fled to loved you, I heard him say. And my heart answered, none but you, only you. And then he said to me, you will have no rest until you rest in me. Come take my hand and rise. In the darkness of my gloom, I saw his outstretched hand and I heard these words. Though you would not see it, I am the one you've been seeking all your life. And so in that moment, after all the endless miles and all the fruitless searching, I finally quit my running and reached up to the one who had sought me for so long. The lost one was finally found. He required nothing Nothing from me beyond acceptance. And the peace I had longed for and never known flooded my heart. And in having nothing of my own, nothing but his love, I found everything I had lacked. I was finally complete, finally at rest in him. It is us that run and hide, friends, while God relentlessly seeks to come after us. God gives us enough of himself to make relationship possible, but he withholds enough of himself to make relationship possible. So what does God have to do to be more obvious? Lightning bolt, an earthquake, a whirlwind, or perhaps he's already obvious in the still, small whisper that lets us know that we are not alone. Imagine you're playing in a soccer game and you're having a great time. 
Of course, it happened to rain that day. So the, the game was on a rain delay, but it, everything picked up and, it, and you went and you played and you got muddy and sweaty and dirty and nasty, but it didn't matter because you were with your friends and you had a good time. So let's pretend you are 16 years, 15 years old and so you can't drive yet. So your mother comes and picks you up from school after the soccer game. And you get in the car and she's like, how was the game? Oh, man, it was so good. We had so much fun, you tell her. And she says, well, I'm happy to hear. But let me let you know, we got an invitation from the governor to go to his house for dinner tonight. And I don't have any time because it's rain delay to take you home. So you have to go just as you are. And you're looking down at your shorts and your cleats and your muddy legs and your dirty shirt. And you're like, what? And so you go to the governor's house and you're thinking like, oh, my goodness, if I can just find a way to hide. You know, there's going to be other guests there. Maybe I can just, you know, just be in the corner somewhere and they won't notice me. And, of course, inevitably, as you walk in, who comes around the corner but the governor in his beautiful, clean tuxedo and his wife in her beautiful gown. And you are there and you, the first thing you think of is to hide behind your mother. Do not let him see me. Now, what happened here, guys? A few minutes prior, you were on the soccer field, and you were fine. You were having a great time. You didn't care about how you looked. But the minute you stepped into the presence of somebody who was so clean, all you could feel was your dirt. All you could sense was how inadequate you were. And so you want to hide from this being that is clean and looks perfect. But, of course, the governor comes towards your mom. And as you're hiding, you feel this hand pull you out from behind. And it's the governor, and he looks at you, and he says, I am so happy that you have come. And he embraces you, and he gives you a hug. And in so doing, your sweat and your dirt and all your filth is, like, getting on him. And that's all you can think about. But all he's thinking about is that you came. I know we wish that God was just a bit more relevant, a bit more obvious in our life. But I think we don't really realize, guys, how perfectly pure he is and how much we would recoil back in fear. But the God of Christianity wants you to come close, even in your dirt, even as you are. And so on this final day for me at creation, and this final day, maybe for some of you, unless you're staying till tomorrow, I want to extend an invitation one more time. For those of you maybe who say, yeah, you know what, there wasn't enough evidence for me, but maybe the last few days have changed things for me. Before, I, I was too ashamed, but I'm hearing you say that God will accept me as I am, or... Maybe you're the person that said, I just didn't know. I just didn't think about it, but I'm thinking about it now. That don't leave here. Don't leave even this place without knowing that God is willing to accept you as you are. He doesn't need to be more obvious. He's been obvious enough. It's you that's been fighting and running away from the hound of heaven that keeps pursuing you. And so if that's you... I'm just going to say a prayer before I go to Q&A. And you're welcome to pray that prayer with me. And it's going to be simple. It's not going to be 10 minutes. It's going to be quick. But the Christian message is simple. 
It is, God, I recognize that I'm a dirty mess. Jesus, I recognize that you lived perfectly, which is the opposite of how I live. And that there's no way for me to get to a clean God as a dirty person, except for the fact that your death on the cross made me clean. And I can be forgiven for what I've done wrong. And because you rose from the dead, that means that you have power over not just your death, but my death as well and what happens to me after I die. Your raising from the dead proved that you weren't just another man, but that you really were the son of God, God himself. And so if you believe in, any of, believe in those things, that's all that makes somebody a Christian. You don't have to go shower first. You just accept it. So I'm going to say this quick prayer. And if that's you, you're welcome to pray it. You can pray it in your head. God can hear your head. But I would love for you to come up to me afterwards. Or even my friend Lisa here. You can come and talk to her as well. I'm going to offer her up as well. And just let us know that you've prayed that prayer so we can talk with you a little bit further. So I'll just say this prayer. You can pray it with me. And then I'll go to a time of Q&A. Dear God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. I thank you for how the life of Jesus changes everything for me. I thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and for rising from the dead. And I ask that you would forgive me for the things that I've done wrong and welcome me into your kingdom. I believe in who you are, that you truly are God and truly risen from the dead. And I submit myself to you as Lord of my life. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the very first time, please come up and talk to me or Lisa here, and we would love to chat with you further. With that said, I've left you time for Q&A, which if you know for me is like miraculous. Um, so I give you time to ask questions. I know it's my final day, so if there's questions on anything I've said over the last four days, you can ask on that. If there's questions on something I didn't even talk about, you can ask on that. If you've got questions on this, whatever, you're welcome to ask. We have about 12 minutes left, so I will go ahead and answer any that you have. First person, go ahead. I see in the purple shirt kind of sort of you're thinking. The Bible says you can't see God and live. Yet some have seen him. How do we answer that? Yes. Okay. So what it's talking about is God the Father. And this is what you see in the Old Testament um, where God says, I'm going to pass by Moses, but you can only see my back. Right? So it's not talking about Jesus, although he is God. Absolutely. But it is talking about God the Father. And it's getting back to this whole idea, too, of he is too great and grand that we wouldn't be able to handle it. And so what people have seen is obviously Jesus walking or, or um, yeah, seen Jesus walking and encountered him. And they've seen angelic beings, but yes, but that's how you could um, deal with that, which is why Moses only could see God's back. All the way in the back there, I see your hand. Yes. My dear, will you come up here? I'm sorry. I've got noise behind me and I'm just missing what you're saying. What made me want to become an apologist? 
So I was one of those um, kind of kids that in church I had a lot of questions growing up. Uh, the short answer was I did not want to become an apologist. If you were here yesterday, you heard me talk about that briefly. Um, I did not want to do it. Um, but I just always had a lot of questions. I was a criminal justice major and, I, and sociology major in my undergrad. And I grew up reading Encyclopedia Brown and Ramona Quimby. Right? I loved the Ramona books. I loved Encyclopedia Brown. And I'd always try and figure out the clues, like what was the case. You know, whatever case Encyclopedia Brown was on, I was always trying to figure out the ending. And so I always loved mystery. I always loved an investigation. I always loved these kind of things. And when I was a kid, I would go around church and ask people these two questions. I don't know. I was maybe eight, nine, ten or so. And I just couldn't figure them out myself. Number one was how do we explain this Trinity thing? I don't get it. Ooh, I know Trinity. Right? Yeah? That's my favorite sign. I love Trinity. It's so beautiful. How is that not cool, guys? Right? The sign for Trinity, three and one. I love it. Um, anyways, so um, I couldn't understand the Trinity. And I couldn't understand um, how God could be in heaven and Jesus on the cross. And that didn't make any sense to me. And I couldn't get anybody to give me a good answer on it. And then um, the second one is I couldn't understand if there was no God, what would there be? Like you couldn't say if there was no God, there would be just be empty space because empty space has a color and it'd probably be black. So then I'd have to ask who created black because that's a color to be created. So I couldn't really figure that out. Now looking back at my age, I'm like, I think I was trying to figure out what nothingness looks like. It's probably what I was trying to do. But I just couldn't understand that. And I couldn't figure, and nobody really gave me good answers. So my point is, I just kind of was always someone who appreciated the investigation and who's always wanting to go deeper into the, into the Bible. And I think all of that laid the foundation for where I am. Apologists are just the detectives of the Christian world. We look at the evidence and we see where it points. Where does it land us? Follow the evidence where it lands you. Next person. Yes. Oh, so I go to a church in Atlanta. I actually live in the hottest junk Atlanta right now. Very difficult for a northerner. Guys, I'm telling you, I know the south looks great. And all that warmth looks great. But stay here. They spend their entire summer indoors because it's so hot in AC. So I'm like, the winter is cold. That could be 20 degrees, 30 degrees. So I'm inside. And then the summer is hot, so we go inside. So when do I get to go out and play? Right? It's like, what is, but up here, we're like, this is amazing. Right? So anyways, point is, I live in Atlanta. Um, so I go to a church called First Baptist Atlanta. Have any of you heard of Dr. Charles Stanley? Okay. That was his church. He just uh, retired in uh, 2020 from active ministry. And so in terms of the pastoring part, he still does in-touch ministry. Um, and so that's the church I go to. Did I see a hand back? Okay, okay. Over here. Sorry, come a little closer, friend. I'm sorry. That was driving by, and then it was just a lost cause. Oh, can I give my take on does God speak audibly to believers today? Um, I would say this. I, I think sometimes we think that God is going to talk to us, like, physically in our ear. And I guess there's some people who have had those experiences. I haven't, um, where I feel like God speaks, like, audibly. It's like I get a download is how he speaks to me. So it's like instead of getting, getting like, word by word by word, and then you make a sentence, I get, like, the whole paragraph at once, if that makes sense. And um, 
So I believe that God is fully speaking to us. I think he wants to engage with us. The idea of of deism is the idea that God creates, but then sits back and just lets the world go and is not interfere with it. Christians don't believe that. We believe God is all in this stuff. And so um, I think God does speak to us. I think he speaks to us through the text. There's times when God has given me a Bible verse, which I didn't even really realize was a Bible verse, as something. And then I went to church, and somebody comes to me and says, God is saying this verse to you. It was like the same thing that he had said to me earlier that day. So in other words, he's speaking through his word. He speaks to other people. He does. I do believe that he speaks to prophets. I will tell you guys we need to be really careful with the prophetic because it's been really twisted. I come out the Pentecostal churches, so I've seen all kind of stuff. But I do believe in the prophetic. But I'll let you know the prophets of the Old Testament were like, you're screwing up. God's going to punish you unless you repent. Get it together. That was prophecy. So we need to be really careful with some of the things that we're doing today and how we use prophecy today, because biblically we see prophecy being a certain kind of way. Um, and so, yeah, I do think God speaks to us. I think it's, I think in a variety of ways, though, he's not going to speak to everybody the same. My sweet, cute little Jamaican grandmother, all five foot zero of her, I felt like she was just like in constant conversation with him. Not the way it is for me. And so I think we need to le- learn the way that God communicates to us. And be okay with where our communication is with him instead of saying, well, he speaks to her like this. He must speak to me like that same way. And that's not true. He communicates with us differently in the same way you communicate with different people in different ways. So is, hopefully that kind of helps you sort through some of that. Okay, good. Yes, in the back. Can I explain? The heavenly realms. So like angels and demons and these kind of things. Oh, like different levels. Yeah, I'm not going to have much for you on that, my friend. I'm sorry. I have not looked into some of that. Part, part of it is I don't want to look into it. This is, this is, this is just me. Um, just because sometimes I hear people say things, you know, well, God is um, going to bless you more in heaven for what you do here. And I'm like, I don't even want to think about that because that's going to affect how I do things now. So there's a part of me that actually says I don't even want to go deeper into that. And I'm just okay just going to. Do, live my life for the Lord, and he'll do what he sees fit. Um, so I don't have much for you on that. Sorry about that. Talk to me, my friend. When was I saved and how was I saved? Um, I actually don't know. And it gave me a complex for a long time. So like, I must not be saved. I would come to, like, music festivals, and I'm, they would say, somebody, you know, you want to give up to Christ? I would just go up. Right? I just kept going because I'm like, what if I'm not saved? Because I never remembered that point. I finally had a pastor say to me, Alicia, I was in my 20s at this point. I'm like, what if I'm not saved? He's like, Alicia, you did convert at some point. You just don't remember it. I'm like, oh, I never thought about that. I was probably really young. At some point, I grew up in the church. And at some point, I said, I believe this. And Okay, and so, but then you have, for those of you who've grown up in the church and have believed from a young age, you'll understand what I'm saying, because we get these complexes. Because you meet other people who become Christians in their 20s and 30s, and God saved me from this, and I was a drug addict, and I was an alcoholic, and I was doing this, and they have this amazing testimony, and you're like, I mean, I went to church. Like, you got nothing. Like, you feel like you can't even contribute. So that was my complex for a long time. Um, I've gotten over that. But, yeah, so for me, I, I, I would say I don't know when it was, but I knew from, from a young age at some point, I just believed. I believed. Yeah. Yes. 
That was bad timing on their part, wasn't that? I heard you talking the other day about Okay, so she's talking a little about sexuality and gender. Yeah, you're saved at a very young age. Do I feel that sometimes the Bible says that God So are you ask okay, are you asking me basically if you're saved, are you always saved? So you're saying someone maybe was saved, then got wrapped up in some kind of sin, and then are they still saved? Is that what you're asking me? Okay. Okay. Right, right. So, okay. So I think I'm gathering what you're saying. So this kind of idea of if you were saved young, but then maybe you go through life and whether it's a sexuality thing, whether it's, I mean, I can name a whole list of things that you would have gone through. At the, at the other side, though, are you saying that this is a person who professes faith in Christ or no longer does? Because I think that's a good indicator of what's going on here. Maybe not sure. Uh, yeah. Right, 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 right. Sure. So I think what we're saying then is can somebody who's was saved, maybe got caught up in some whatever kind of sin, now they don't really know what they believe, can we determine at that point whether or not they still are really saved or not saved? And I, I would say I don't think we know because we don't fully know things until the end of the story. And as long as somebody is still alive, um, we don't know whether or not they will ever bow their knee again to Jesus or whether they'll say forget this. So I think there's going to be times in, in the middle of somebody's life where we do question and we do wonder just because we're not sure what they will think or feel tomorrow. Um, and so I think I would actually say, I don't know if we can know because um, we're looking at somebody in the middle of the journey and trying to determine where they're going to land. Sometimes they'll say, yes, exactly. Those can be your testimony. If you, if you, you know, struggle with a bunch of things and you come back to the Lord, yeah, that is exactly, yeah, that can be your testimony. Absolutely. Are you, is, oh, okay. Next question. So I don't know if you're pointing to somebody. Oh, got you. And then we'll go over here. Oh, why are there so, so many denominations in their faith? Because there's so many Christians who get things who like to fight. Oh, my goodness. 
You know what, my friend? I did not know that this was an issue for non-Christians. I had, so, okay, so I don't know what church did you go to. But if this young lady was like, Elise, you would come to my church on Sunday, I'd be like, sure. And this young lady said, Elise, you would come to my church on Sunday, sure. And going down the line, I would never say, what denomination are you? I was like, yeah, I'll go with you, whatever. I, so for me, the denominational thing was never a big deal. But then I got asked it so many, by so many non-Christians. And they're like, look, you're so divided. And what I've got to continue to explain to them is, yes, we do hold different beliefs on certain things that are minor, but we are not divided on the core. We're not divided on the, on the, on the, on the central things, right? So, so we'll be divided on things like, should you baptize infants or should you baptize adults after they become Christians? We'll be divided on whether or not women can preach or whether or not women can't preach. You know, we'll be divided on like the type of music that we have. Pentecostal churches, we dance our way through worship, right? And then other churches, that, that's, we read from the hymns, right? So they'll be divided on those things which are minor. But to the non-Christian world, they don't get that. They just see division as division. They don't see the different degrees. And so these denominations, guys, actually are problematic for the non-Christian world. Just FYI, because that was something I didn't know, so I'm sharing that with you. They actually see it as much more problematic than maybe you or I will. And so um, why are there so many denominations? Because we can't agree on all these things. Because I think that there, there are, some of them are just silly. Um, they really are just silly. I heard one the other day that I was like, that's the difference? It was like, oh, one was about which way you baptize. Baptize going forward, baptize going backwards. And I'm like, first of all, I didn't know there was like that big of a difference, but apparently it divided people into two denominations, one going forward, one going backwards. And I'm like, what? So some of these things are relatively like trivial. Um, some of them um, I think are, you know, are, are bigger, I guess you could say. But at the end of the day, what makes someone a Christian is the core doctrine of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, how they view the Bible, the Trinity, these kind of things. And anybody who has a distortion on that would then not be considered a Christian. So it would, it, it's, it's, so it's less about, you know, denominations being of uh, various things. Um, in terms of division, they're really less divisive than they should be, although sometimes we do make divisions out of them. And it's more about do we agree on these core things? So there's so many different denominations because God, sometimes the Bible isn't fully clear on things. And I know that might make some people uncomfortable, but we will never settle whether women should preach or women should not preach on this side of heaven. We're never going to settle in terms of, I'm talking about in terms of the, the church body coming together as one belief is what I mean. We're not going to come together as one belief on whether we are predestined or whether we choose and all, election, all these kinds. As a church body, we're not going to come to a consensus, I don't think. And it's just because I don't think God laid out all of the things for us in the text. And so there's rooms on some of these things to say, I see it this way or I see it that way. And so the, the different denominations is going to be, do we, will we actually just say, hey, you view this different, you view this different, let's just worship Jesus anyways, or do we want to say we want to go to two different churches now? And that's what we've done. And I, and I think a lot of that is so incredibly problematic because people think that there's so many different versions of Christianity. This is just your version of it, Alicia, because they don't understand it in that way, in the same way that we do. So, yes, anything that messes with the core is the essential. That's how you get Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. In my opinion, even potentially Islam, I oftentimes question whether or not Islam is just an ancient Christian cult. 
It's grown to the size that we see as a different religion. But Islam, just like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, what they often do, these, um, these cults, we call them cults, is they alter the core in some way, but they keep some of the truths of it. So Jesus existed, Jesus was great, but he's not divine. Or Jesus was good, and he was great, but he didn't die on the cross. Or um, salvation is by faith, except when it's by works. Or things like that. And that's what the, and, and Islam believes in Jesus. Islam believes that um, he was a great prophet. He was sinless, but they don't believe he died on the cross, which is fascinating to me because it's the only major world religion that denies that. Even historians will acknowledge he died on the cross because we have documentation for that outside the Bible. But Islam says God would never allow a prophet, an honorable prophet, to die in that way. So I think it's actually an ancient Christian cult because it alters, it, it believes in the Bible, but it thinks our Bible is altered or is flawed in some way. So they have their Quran. And same thing with the Mormons. Our Bible is flawed, so they have a Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine and Covenants and these kind of things. Jehovah's Witnesses think our Bible is flawed. They have their own New King, uh, New World Translation. So you see these same kind of patterns between the cults and I think Islam. And I think Islam was just a cult that developed way back then that um, tweaked some of the things about Jesus. They believe he was virgin birth, virgin born, by the way. So they accept the virgin birth of Jesus. I mean, they recognize Jesus as unique, but they don't accept that he's the way to heaven. Salvation is by works in Islam instead of by faith. So you see these tweaks. That is a different religion than a denomination would be. A denomination would agree on the core of Jesus in the Bible. So sadly, the short answer to your question is why are there so many denominations? It's because there's so many of us. That's just the short answer. Um, I, know I'm at, I know I'm at three, so I, will, I need to let you guys go if you need to. If you want to stay, I'll do a few more questions. But thank you very much, guys. If you prayed that prayer, please come up and see me as well. Uh, I saw your hand right here. What is the definition of a cult? How do you know it's a cult? So, thank you. So, a cult is anybody essentially, I don't, is anything that's going to have an alteration on the core principles or core doctrines of Christianity. In terms of a Christian cult, I'm saying. Okay, so it's in relationship to Christianity. So, it's going to have a different view on the identity of Jesus, the identity of God, the credibility of the Bible, some of the, uh, facts that happen in the Bible. And so they're going to have a, but because those differences are so major, it leads them to believe in something significantly different. So in Jehovah's Witness belief, for example, Jesus isn't divine. He is Michael the archangel that came to earth. And so they have a, they have a, they don't believe um, that Jesus is God. And so they have a, a twist on the essential nature of who Jesus is. Okay, that's just an example. So anything that alters is, is a variant from that core. There are some Christian denominations, actually. I got myself in trouble once. I didn't know that's what this church believed when they invited, invited me in to speak. I've since learned to check their website first. But they are what's called modalists, which essentially, I know, what? Right, I didn't know either. A modalist is someone who does not believe in the Trinity. They believe that God the Father existed as a particular mode in the Old Testament then he became Jesus in the new, but he wasn't God the Father at the same time. He was then Jesus, and then he was the Holy Spirit. So he exists in different ways at different times, but it's never at the same time. Whereas the Christian doctrine is that we understand there's three persons which are coexisting and co-eternal. And modalists don't believe that. So then my big mouth gets on stage, 
and I got asked on Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I described what a Christian cult is. It's people who deny the Trinity and people who deny all of these things. And I basically called them a cult from their own stage. I didn't know. I didn't know. And I felt bad, but they really liked me. And they kept asking me questions. And I was like, okay, and they did want me back. So, I, yeah. So you will find a ma- this is a major Christian denomination as well, which is why I had no idea that it was a cult. It was not Jehovah's Witness or anything. It was a major Christian denomination. I just had no idea. So I'll give you the denomination so you know. It's the Apostolic Church. Apostolic Church of God, I believe is what it is. But the Apostolic Churches are modalists. They are not Trinitarians. That God exists in one form in the Old Testament, one form of Jesus, and one form of the Holy Spirit. And I think, I may be wrong, I'm not sure if he can go back and forth. Like, I don't know if he can be Father or Spirit. But either way, they're not coexisting at the same time. So if you ever go to an apostolic church, don't put your foot in your mouth like I did. Anybody else? Oh. Did you say, did you have a hand there? Oh, right there. Seeking out the fine Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. I did. We got hired at RZM right around the same time. Yeah. It's a great story. He's talking about a Muslim convert who's a colleague of mine. He was a mus- raised Muslim, raised Ahmadiyya Muslim, uh, Muslim, became a Christian. And he says that he read his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. A really great story if you want to learn about um, Islam. Really good uh, story about how... Once again, someone who didn't want to convert but was compelled to and had just really amazing divine encounters with God where God showed himself to him. Talk about Ravi Zacharias. Yes. We have survived. So, so you asked me what's kind of happened with RZIM? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What books to recommend for apologetics? Um, yes. So just so you know, Lighten is, I think I said Lighten is the U.S. We were the U.S. Everybody that works at the organization I work at now, Lighten was formerly with RZIM. So we are all the RZIM U.S. kind of branch is who we are now. Um, so what books would I recommend for Islam, you said? Or apologetics in general? Oh, you have Hindu friends. Yeah, that's interesting. So here's, here's uh, this is a tough one for me. And the reason is, is I actually spend more time reading, trying to understand theology than I do apologetics. And the reason is, is because I oftentimes just quip that apologists are just theologians who are good communicators. In other words, all I'm doing all the time, even with a non-Christian audience, is explaining Christianity to them. They just don't know it. So all I'm doing is trying to teach them Christianity in ways in which they don't recognize. So like there's a time I quote from Ecclesiastes, and I'm like, so a king wrote hundreds of years or thousands of years ago, and then I read it, and they don't know it's Ecclesiastes. So one thing I, I guess I would suggest that's really helpful, actually I love Lee Strobel's The Case for Faith. Case for Faith, Case for Christ, those kind of things are really good. Um, I mean, shameless plug, you can check out our website, and we'll have the apologetics materials we have there with certain articles. That would be really helpful. And um, all of our podcast questions are, are apologetic questions, pornography and sexuality and what can't God do. We say things like God can do everything. No, he can't. He actually can't. God is limited by his nature. There's certain things he can't do. He can't sin. He can't do the logically impossible. So in other words, by his nature, it limits his ability to do anything. 
Um, but he can do he can do everything that is within consistence with his perfectly morally good nature. Stuff like that. So we talk about those things. Um, other books that would be helpful. If you like philosophy, I'd suggest William Lane Craig's. I'll tell you, he's a heavy hitter in terms of, like, he's a lot of head knowledge. I think you might like, you know, you like William Lane Craig? Okay, I think he'd be a good fit for you, friend. Um, reasonablefaith.com, I think. It might be .org, but reasonablefaith.com. Um, Mike Lacona is a great apologist. He's excellent on the, on the Bible credibility stuff and the resurrection. Mike Lacona, it's um, Risen Faith. Ministries, but either way, his last name is L I C O N A. Mike Lacona, L I C O N A. All these people you can find on YouTube. Um, and honestly, I would just encourage. Well, okay, archaeology. You can look at the Biblical Archaeology Review website. It's a thirty dollar, I think, a year membership. If you first time, it's like first time subscriber. It's like ten bucks a year, and they are just archaeology discoveries like the stuff that you heard me say on the main stage a couple days ago that's pretty much like what they do all the time so that's another good one um if you want science this is where it gets tricky because you got different scientific views um i would say the three big websites for science are going to be answers in genesis which is ken ham young earth kind of view um, and then the old earth view, which, which are the people that say they think, don't believe the earth is only 6,000 years old. They actually think it's actually millions of years old, as science says, but they don't believe that evolution was the means to which God created. That's a group called Reasons to Believe. I know I'm giving you a lot. I am. And then Biologos is the other one, who are the, who are the Christians who believe in evolution. And they have their whole website, biologos.org. Francis um, Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project, head of the National Institutes of Health for this country, although he is retiring soon, or he may have retired already. But the head of the National Institutes of Health, you may have even seen his name during COVID, um, Francis Collins, he is a huge Christian, very vocal about his faith. And his Biologos is his website. So he's a Christian, but he believes that evolution was the means through which God created. And Biologos is his website. So I think there's probably a lot of books. In terms of Hinduism, I don't know if I have a really good one for you. <laughs> Um, you could read like a, like a, uh, kingdom of the cults, like, uh, what's it, Walter Williams, Walter Martin, because it'll just talk about Hinduism. And then what you can do as you understand the belief more, you, you can look for ways in which, how can I express Jesus or communicate with them? Hinduism is tricky because they actually like Jesus. They have no problem with Jesus. They just don't like him being above the other gods. Cause there's 330 million gods. Jesus is one of them. So they don't really care. They just don't like it when you make him above the other ones. And now they have an issue. So maybe that might be helpful. I don't know if that was really helpful. You know what might be helpful? Check out oneminuteapologist.org. See if they have anything on Hinduism. They've got thousands of videos. Oneminuteapologist.org. Bobby Conway, it's great. One, they're very short one-minute videos on apologetic questions. Well, now they're like two or three minutes. But, like, they really get to the point, here's the answer, here's the answer, and there's, like, thousands of them now. Yes, talk to me. And then I saw that hand over there. What would I say to someone who clearly doesn't want to believe? I would tell them almost a little bit what I said from the main stage the other night, which I don't, did you hear that? Okay, it's fine. That's because I just want to make sure I don't repeat what I don't need to repeat. Um... Do you want me to still get to your question? I see him leaving, but I feel bad I didn't get to his question because he had his hand up. I would say this. We all believe in something. The reality is, is we all believe in something. 
I just didn't want you to walk away and I didn't catch your question, that's all. But that's okay, it's really okay. Um, but yeah, so I would tell them we all believe in something, right? So something is shaping their view of humans. Something is shaping their morality. Something is shaping what they think about how we got here, what happens when we die. So my question is, you already believe in something. So I would actually maybe start to question, how do you know that what you believe in is true? And then maybe if we can find holes in that, then they might be willing to consider what I have to say about Christianity. Okay? Because there really is, a, like, I, we all, something is influencing the way that we, why that we use the words we use, why we swear, why we don't swear, why we help somebody cross the road or why we don't. Something is influencing us to do that. And that could be ourselves. So that's fine. How do I know I can trust you and what you think is right or wrong? But either way, getting people to question and analyze themselves is a really helpful way to get somebody to maybe say, okay, well, will you consider something else as well? Because they'll see that their view starts to break down, and now they're open to saying, is there something else that won't break down? Does that make sense? And then we'll go over here. Yes. Do I believe in a young earth or an old earth? Um, I don't know. I was raised young earth. Um, I, I was like, I'm pretty sure most people in here are probably raised young earth. So for the really young ones, um, that's all we knew. We just knew that like the earth was 6,000 years old and Genesis one says this day, Genesis two says, or excuse me, verse one says this, verse two says this, verse three, like we just know the day, 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 day. The problem lies is that we, we are, we are associating 24 hour time periods before the sun is created. I think the sun is created on day three, maybe. And we're associating 24-hour time periods before that. But what makes our 24 hours is, is the relationship between the earth and the sun. So I see that as like, okay, what are we doing with that? The old earth crew will say, look, day doesn't necessarily mean 24-hour day. It could mean time period. So in other words, if I say to you, today I'm going to go eat pizza for dinner, okay, that means on this date, July 2nd. If I say back in my day, I ate pizza for dinner, I'm not talking about July 2nd, 1993. I'm talking about a time period. When I say back in my day, same word, but it means something different. So what people who, who hold to the older view say, when the Bible says day in Genesis, it doesn't necessarily mean 24 hours. It could have been a time period. So it could have been millions of years between one day and the next, is what they say. The challenge with that view is that when God, okay, the challenge with that view, and here's part of the argument that they have for that, is if it happened on six literal days, we would have way more mosquitoes and animals, and the population would have been way crazier than it is now. Like, in other words, um, sorry, that's not true. Let me take that back. One of the things that they believe is that if, if, if um, we have these six time periods, and that means that there had to have been animal death before the fall. Okay, this is why. Because if the earth is millions of years old, and these animals are millions of years old, then the earth would have been flooded, and there was no death. It would have been flooded with mosquitoes, flooded with spiders, flooded with tigers. It would be so many animals you couldn't even move because they had millions of years to grow, and they could never die. So there would have had to have been death before the fall. So then the young earth guys would say, well, that's problematic. Because why would God call the earth good if there's death and suffering in it? Animals are eating each other or they're just dying, whatever is happening. How could God call that good? Number two, how could there be death before the fall of humanity, which then brought all of these things 
um, into into the world. So that so they will push back and say that kind of thing. So you've got and then the evolutionists are over here, and they're like the Earth is old, and evolution was the means to which God created. Some of the challenges with that view, though, is that part of evolution is that it need it is a random process. It's also not a very nice process, but it's a random process. So how can you have God designing and controlling something that is happening randomly? Either God is controlling and designing it, or it's happening randomly, but you can't have both. So you'll have, so each group kind of pushes back. Those are the three main groups. Each group kind of pushes back on each other with, for various reasons. Obviously, the evolutionists believe in death before the fall as well. These, this middle ground, which is the um, reasons to believe old earthers, would say there was death before the fall, but evolution was not the means to which God created. He made trees. He made plants. He made animals. He made humans. He didn't, they didn't uh, evolve on a macro level. So where do I believe? I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm okay to sit back and say, let's continue to study. I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay to not know right now. And I think sometimes we feel a pressure to know and land. And I'm like, guys, we're in the middle or maybe even the beginning stages of understanding these things. Just let's keep digging in and finding out. It's okay to not know right now. I find problems with, I, I tend to lean still more to the young earth. And the, really the only reason I have is theological. I don't know enough about the science um, but this, it seems like scientifically, according to the scientists the earth, and the Christian ones, the earth is much older than what the biblical framework is laying out. But for me, I struggle with this idea that there would have been a broken world before the fall, that there would have been death and suffering before the fall. That's a hard one for me and it's a hard one for me to kind of sort through. But I'm willing to be wrong. So I'm kind of in the I don't know land and I'm okay there as we continue to dig in and, and figure out. Key point for me to make for you guys is we, these three views all of them believe that God did it, okay? These are not Christians trying to be deceitful. I know a lot of people really attack the evolutionists. I've met them. I've talked with the people at Biologos. These are great people. They are genuinely love Jesus Christ. They genuinely love the Bible. They are not looking to interpret the Bible. They recognize that if this is true, then it does mess. It's, it's, they have to sort out the theology because the theology is going to be it, you have to relook at the theology. When you've got evolution happening and you've got species of, of humanity that's evolving into humans, and does God take just two out and make them Adam and Eve? And then what happens to these guys? Or when do people, when do these species become image bearers, creating the image of God? So they, they get it though. They will admit it. They get that. We know we have to work on the theology, and they recognize that. And they're good about that. But they, they, as scientists, are like, look, this is what we see the science telling us. And so they're so to, because they have commitment to Jesus Christ, they're like, we fully believe in the Bible as well. But we think what Genesis was doing was it wasn't trying to lay out a scientific textbook. It was trying to let us know that God created. That was the point of this Genesis 1 and 2 for that culture was to tell that culture that God is behind this. It wasn't supposed to lay out exactly how God did what he did. And so that's what the evolutionary crew is trying to say. And so really all three of these groups will believe that it's God who did it. The question is just how did he do what he did? That's all the question is. They're just trying to figure out how. Did he use evolution? Did he not use evolution? What was it? But that's what makes us different than the non-Christian world who believes in evolution because they deny that God did it. And they just think evolution happened randomly. If you heard me on the main stage the other day, I said evolution is not an origins theory. 
it just describes once whatever triggered it over here in the non-Christian view, something triggered all this to happen. We don't know what that is yet, but once it happened, evolution was the means to which it was carried out. But that's all evolution is. It's the processes, but it is not the mechanism that kicked everything into gear and the scientific natural, the scientific uh, non-godly or, or atheistic community, I should say, not non-godly, excuse me, the, the atheistic community don't have an answer for origins. They don't know. They're like, well, we'll still keep looking. So that's the difference really between, between these guys will all say God did. We're just trying to understand how he did it. And these groups will say something different. So I don't know where I land, and I'm okay to continue to let people dig into it and continue to learn over time. I don't have to know because all I know is God did it. At the end of the day, that's what's important for me.